Welcome to the Telehealth and Medicine Today Unscripted Journal Podcast Series, where industry innovators transform healthcare. Today, our guests are Susanna Fox, author of the book Rebel Health, Dr. Matthew Sakamoto, CMIO, Sutter Health West Bay Region, and moderator Sarah Bell, Vice President, Product and Clinical Evaluation at Bioformis. Let's listen in on how we can assist patients take their power back. Hey everyone, excited to be here with two experts. Um, We're gonna talk about uh, rebel patients and caregivers for Susanna Fox's book that's coming out. Um, Read the book, it's amazing. And congratulations, Susanna, on that. And today we're gonna talk about really anybody who feels alone, forgotten or lost um, in suffering and how, uh, you know, Patients, caregivers, survivors uh, have honed in their skills uh, and deployed them in a meaningful way to create groups outside of uh, traditional healthcare to really move research and evidence and their um, scenarios forward. So I'm Sarah Bell. I'm the moderator today. I'm vice president of product and clinical implementation with Bioformis. I'm a nurse. I'm an innovator, excited to uh, moderate this group. Uh, Susanna, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Um, My name is Susanna Fox, and I'm a health and technology strategist. I started out as a researcher. I spent 14 years at the Pew Research Center and did field work in online patient communities as well as national telephone surveys. And then I moved to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to be entrepreneur in residence and worked in the Obama administration at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as their chief technology officer. And then I went independent and have been spending time helping startups and big healthcare companies understand this incredible revolution that's happening underground, led by patients, survivors, and caregivers. And that's what my book is about. Awesome. And then Matt. Sure. Uh, excited to be here. So Matt Sakamoto, I'm a virtualist primary care physician based out of San Francisco. Um, I've kind of bounced around to a couple of different places in my med school in Chicago, did my internal medicine residency in San Diego, and then my clinical informatics fellowship uh, in San Francisco. So I've gotten to see healthcare in a lot of different places. Um, and then I've always gravitated towards providing care beyond the clinic walls. So a lot of times that's population health. Um, and then I really got into telehealth, particularly during the pandemic. Um, so virtual care has been a big interest of mine, and in particular, that intersection between how do you connect with patients um, when you're no longer in, in the exam room with them. So I've done a lot of work with patient advocates um, and developing this idea around digital empathy. So I think a lot of the um, inspiration for doing work uh, with patients and patient advocates, as well as just kind of my daily practice, has really been um, shaped by the digital empathy work that I'm working on. Great. Thank you so much. So want to jump right in. And Susanna, your book is titled Rebel Health, A Field Guide to the Patient-Led Revolution in Medical Care. Um, you really provide guidance for anybody suffering uh, new diagnoses, rare diagnoses, chronic conditions, and walk them through how to leverage patient-led groups to find answers and essentially change their course of care. Can you just kind of fill us in on, on your journey in this space and how how have you tapped into this, this underground uh, kind of work that you described it um, and, and brought us to this book? I was really lucky early in my career as a researcher to have a mentor, Tom Ferguson, uh, who said, you're never gonna understand the intersection of healthcare and technology if you don't spend time with patients. 
particularly patients who are living with rare disease and life-changing diagnoses, because they are the pioneers of healthcare. Um, they are the people who are going to push the edges of whatever field they're in. And uh, they're often first to a tool. And so starting in the year 2000, 2001, I started spending time in communities um, of all kinds. Uh, these were bulletin board systems. These were listservs. Again, this was, you know, more than 20 years ago. So the technology was different, but the the spirit was the same as we're seeing right now, that, that people who are desperate to make a change in their lives are going to try to find out information, network together. If they don't find the tool that they need, they're going to build it themselves. And what I realized as my career progressed, I started getting invited to um, give talks to corporate boards and give talks at NIH and the White House. And this this was news, this this idea that patients were self-organizing and and finding ways through this maze of healthcare together. This was news to people who um, sit in uh, places of influence. And so that was part of my inspiration for writing the book. I, I wanted to create a field guide so that people know when they join the revolution, who are the types of people that you're going to meet. That's amazing. Uh, desperate uh, resonates with me because there are patients and, and we, we have all had experience with patients who are in that desperate point. They're having something going on that either can't be figured out or that is rare or you're told you're one of 10 who we know about who have this. There's such a desperation in that point to find answers and to um, coordinate and find others so that you have a sense of what your life might look like. You know, I'm in this point today and and what might my life look like in the future. So um, Matt, as a provider um, and, and having, I'm certain patients come to you uh, with many ailments and things that potentially you don't have the answer for, or they're in that search. Um, do you have any, you know, kind of experience in terms of this organization that Susanna talks about or kind of patient-led groups and how does that play into your practice today? Yeah, I have the benefit of being primary care. So I get to say, I don't know. And let me send you to the experts all the time, right? So I refer out to cardiology, endocrinology, and increasingly kind of these patient-led groups, if I can find them, and I think developing a resource would be helpful, but it's uh, long COVID is a great example, right? Um, I think there are, it's so new, there definitely is no randomized studies on how to treat that, but there are communities of patients that are coming together. So as we start to, and I hear about it from patients, like as we start to hear about um, areas that are good, helpful, um, and supportive, I've found myself increasingly referring out, so to speak, um, to different patient-led groups. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's a lot to learn from, from, from the patients for sure. Yeah, and do you, I'm wondering from the provider side, and we'll kind of get into this later, um, how in in your group of providers and your colleagues, what's the sense or what's the the feeling of you know patients coming in kind of ready at the ready uh, with I, I'm in this group or I, I've talked to so and so who has the same thing and I want answers. How how do you navigate that as a physician? 
And that's tough because I think we're very much trained in that evidence-based medicine. So my knee-jerk reaction is to look in the literature. And of course, it's it's not going to be there yet. Right? It's moving so fast that it doesn't have time to make it into the literature. Um, so there's a patient advocate that I've worked with a bunch, <clears throat> Sarah Krug. We've co-authored a couple of things uh, in telehealth and medicine today. And in particular, uh, there's this concept of experience-based medicine. So I just talked about evidence-based medicine, looking up the literature, but there's also that lived experience of the patient um, and starting to trust that a little bit more. So I think for me, the hardest part is figuring out, hey, <laughs> when a patient says, I have an N of one friend or someone that I found through an online community, it's tough for me to be like, oh yeah, that's the one. Um, so I think that's for, for me when I, uh, in a medical setting, when I'm recommending something, I kind of want to have more than just one person saying it. How much is enough for me to start to recommend it? That's tough. That's, I guess, that's sort of the, the art of medicine. Um, so I need to have more than just one other person saying, yeah, this is a good community that um, I want to be part of. But if I hear it from enough people um, and I'm just, and I kind of see the results from the patients, it's like, oh, yeah, they were really supportive or they recommended these things and I'm getting better, then I'm more likely to recommend it. So there's not a hard or fast number of, you know, number of people to number needed to recommend. But um, I don't know. It's more than one, less than 100. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. There is no science, right? Uh, experience base is a good way to coin that. I like that. And, and Susanna, in your field guide, you kind of talk about the the archetypes of people that come together to form these groups. You have the seeker, the networker, the solver, and the champion. Um, can you talk about how these roles evolve and and how they kind of come together and play into this revolution? Sure. I'll talk also a little bit about the origin of of how I I came up with these archetypes. Um, in my field work, whether I was talking with people who were living with cancer or ALS or HIV or diabetes or cystic fibrosis, um, what I saw is that um, when when people's needs are not being met by mainstream healthcare, they react in a variety of ways. And I started to look for patterns. I started looking back at my field notes and then and then doing fresh interviews with patient survivors and caregivers, I started to see that um, for some people, actually they they um, get a really tough diagnosis or they get a, they have a setback in their health and they shut down um, and they don't engage. Um, but then maybe there's some glimmer of hope, some spark, some, news headlines, some, you know, post on Facebook, something that happens where they say, oh, wait, there, there maybe is an answer here. And so um, they go out on the hunt for more information. And that spark to take action is what defines the beginning of someone who is a seeker. And actually, I would argue that we want everybody to be a seeker so that if they get hit by adversity, they don't shut down. They they have some kind of spark that helps them to take action. Um, another glimmer of hope that'll draw somebody out of their shell is the opportunity to learn in community. Some of us are very likely to raise our hand and say, I need help, whether it's in their online community or an offline community. And that's when you start to see the motivation and actions associated with being a networker. Somebody who... Um, pools resources, who always seems to know someone who knows someone. And um, those people are incredibly helpful, um, whether you are dealing with something in your own health or, um, or actually if you are a leader 
who wants to get a message out, you need to find the networkers who can help you lift up, um, you know, that there's a new vaccine or a, or a new product or a new service that might be useful for a community. The third group are um, solvers and solvers are really interesting. They're the kind of people who, if something's not working, they won't rest until they can take it apart and put it back together again. And that could be like an assistive device for someone who's living with disability. That could be a medical device. That could be actually a system. You know, somebody um, who's part of a clinical trial who just is so annoyed by how things are being run in the clinical trial that they start to give notes to the intake nurse. <laughs> That's a solver. Um, and um, those are the three that that I came up with, right? I knew I was going to write about those three um, as I started writing the book. And actually, the fourth archetype um, that emerged as I was writing and doing my interviews um, were the champions, because I realized that there are people who may not have a life-threatening diagnosis, but they have influence. They have access to a scarce resource like funding like regulatory guidance, like access to labs or manufacturing facilities or know-how. Um, they might have access to materials that a patient-led group of solvers really needs. Another one that's really important is um, access to attention. Members of the media can be champions um, and shine a spotlight. Um, and, and again, what, what I would love to see is that everybody can step into their power whether you are are facing something very serious in your own health or whether you want to help a patient-led organization, you can step into your power as a seeker, networker, solver, or champion. That's amazing. That resonates. Um, I think I'm definitely a solver. I'm a nurse. I want to fix everything. Um, if there's a problem, are totally natural solvers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just, I want to get in there and, uh, and make it all better. Um, one of the things that hits is some of the resources that it can take to come up with, you know, a group or form, a, you know, a patient led um, kind of revolution as you coin that it, it costs resources, time, money, um, you have to know people, any thoughts on how to overcome, you know, those types of barriers you know, if, if you're hitting those roadblocks, how, how can a, a seeker who's dealing with uh, something or as a patient, uh, you know, a family member dealing with, with something, how can they overcome some of those things? Well, the first thing to overcome is the um, fear of raising your hand and admitting that you need help. There, That's having the courage to say, I need help. Um, and on the other side, the courage to say, I have an idea about how to help. Um, so th that's the first thing. The, um, in terms of seekers, we're living in this incredible information age when more and more information is available for free. Um, hopefully people have access to the internet on their own. If they don't, they can get to a public library and have access to the world's libraries. Um, and the more that we all work towards open access, for medical journals and um, scientific findings, the better. Because um, if you want to see someone who is not going to stop until she gets the information that she needs, you're just gonna wanna try and talk to a caregiver of a kid with a rare disease. 
because she will run through a brick wall to find the information. How can we infuse everyone with that spirit? And how can we make sure that every seeker gets access to the information that they need? Um, you know, in terms of in terms of resources, when I was interviewing solvers, um, one mistake that some solvers talked about is that um, they waited until they had access to a fancy lab or manufacturing facility, um, you know, something fancy like a, a 3D printer before they really got started in prototyping. And they said that was a mistake. And their advice for, for other solvers is to start creating something out of cardboard and duct tape and rubber bands. And this is really important, start showing other people that prototype. Start sharing your idea because it's always going to get better. You know, it, when, a, when a product meets a market, that's when we find out whether it's really going to work. And in in healthcare, that, that market is going to maybe be you know, in a care setting or in a community where you're able to share your design online. Um, and, and the advice is don't wait to have access to the fancy materials and labs. Start now. Oh, that's interesting. And I couldn't agree more that uh, being a parent uh, and if, if you have a child that has a rare disease, that that fire to do whatever by whatever means necessary to um, get them help and care that they need is is real and has powered a lot. Um, Matt, I'm curious thoughts, reactions to kind of what Susanna's saying. You know, you're in in the traditional healthcare space. Um, how how do, do you have advice or or thoughts about how people who might come, you know, through you for help or are on that journey? How do they navigate the healthcare system best? You know what. What tips, tricks, things would you kind of share? For sure. I mean, I will say that it's very complex. Like I said, I'm in the middle of it. Um, again, sitting in primary care, like it's at the intersection of hospital, outpatient, specialist. Um, and I don't know where most of the things are. Um, so I think just recognizing that it's really complex and you and there isn't really a straight path to anything. Um, so I think just coming in with that, um, with, with that realization. But I think that's one of those things where uh, exactly like Susanna was saying, like, don't be afraid as a patient, don't be afraid to ask. Um, and persistence is good. Um, so I think that, that that's, that's one thing. The other thing that I've learned, and this is a lot uh, through the clinical informatics realm, is there's the org chart that's stated, and then there's the unstated org chart. So it's learning to kind of navigate where are those levers, where are kind of those hidden people. So it, it, it's kind of that, that same idea. So it's kind of, you know, rebel health, kind of like what's happening under the surface. There's the people whose names are on the door, and then you have the people who are influencers, but whose names aren't on the door, so to speak. So I think it's not printed anywhere. You kind of talk to a lot of different people, but that's when you start to learn, like, those are the levers that can push things forward, particularly kind of within large um, matrix organizations. Um, but that, that also kind of works in policy as well. So it's sort of finding finding the name that's not published, which is hard to do, but once you do, um, that person tends to often be kind of a combination network or solver. They know a lot of people and they can kind of push things through. And then they no, push yeah. it to the champion, yeah. No, that's absolutely true. Um, my niece has a rare condition, it's called CHD3, 100 kids uh, internationally have it, 100 people. And um, they were lucky, my, my sister, 
brother-in-law and brother were lucky in the sense that they came to Mayo Clinic um, and Mayo was just about to publish on their findings of a new genetic condition. And what that did is that my my sister-in-law is, is a seeker. Um, she is going to do anything possible to find information. And so through that, they've created Facebook groups. My brother is a software engineer. They created a website. They're working on international presence. But it has created a community for them of hope, of um, the thought, you know, other kids in different stages of it and seeing, oh, that's what our daughter could become. Um, okay, you know, the medical community doesn't have a lot of advice for us. And so finding somebody that has the same condition that is successful in life or has something um, that you can achieve has provided hope and allowed them to parent in potentially a different way than maybe they would have. Um, and so the thought that, uh, Susanna, you said access to journals, to information, to um, often, you know, I can't I can't Google and without paying subscriptions or being part of an academic medical center. I have no access to some of of journals and information. What do you see as the future there? I mean, is this going to open up or how how do we create an environment where people can get the information and and have what they need at their fingertips? What I appreciate about this conversation is that you both just identified ways that some people are able to get access to a map through the maze, or if we're going to use a gaming uh, metaphor, they get a cheat code, right? So like the cheat code for a certain hospital is finding out who's not on the org chart, but who knows how to get that appointment, or who knows somebody at Mayo Clinic who can get that, that fast-tracked appointment. Um, what is our opportunity is to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to get that map and to get that cheat code. And um, what, what I'm super excited about is that because of online communities, because of Facebook, because of all the ways that we're able to connect with each other, if one person, if one patient or survivor or caregiver find something out that is vital, they are able to share it online and then networkers go to work and are able to just spread the word to the diaspora of people all across the world to, to find out, you know, what it is, you know, what is the scientific advancement? I mean, that's how we've seen such incredible advancement in cystic fibrosis you know, that that we we had an advancement at one clinical center, it was tested, validated, spread to as many clinical centers as, as found out about it. Um, that kind of um, cycle, we need to speed that up and patients and survivors and caregivers are standing by hoping to help with that. We need to give them access to information. We need to give them access to data and we need to give them access to each other. Oh, that's fascinating and true. And um, we have to publish the cheat codes, right? How do we make it so you don't need a cheat code um, to get through? It, one of the, I think, pushback I hear from from providers, from, you know, I have my own skepticism sometimes as, as a clinician and, and you have a patient come in and they said, I found this on the internet or I found this, you know, I'm part of this group. And there's this fear that patient-led groups will be a breeding ground of misinformation. Um, I think COVID and vaccination was maybe a, a 
you know, a more recent topic that probably has instilled a little more fear in the medical community about patient-led groups and about misinformation that could spread. Um, you provided some interesting data in your book, Susanna, about how some of these, most of these patient-led groups actually self-regulate and really um, regulate their own information and accuracy to eliminate or kind of squash misinformation. Can you talk about that? Yeah, one of my favorite studies um, looked at a breast cancer online community and um, they looked at about 10,000 messages that were posted um, and uh, there were a handful that did contain incorrect information. And the community was able to react to that incorrect information almost like it was a virus. The antibodies swarmed it and squashed it within six hours usually of the incorrect information being posted. What I also love about that study um, is that it showed what a high level the discussion um, was being conducted on, the, that breast cancer patients were, were talking about clinical trials. They were talking about treatments. They were trading information that um, for the most part had scientific validity in addition to the peer-to-peer -peer support um, that they all were really looking for and just the day-to-day, -day, how do I deal with this um, treatment? That, that a lot of people are craving. So the misinformation question is one of my favorites because it gets to the fact that misinformation is a threat to all of us as individuals and as a society. Um, Rob Califf, um, who served, um, actually he was the head of the FDA when I was at HHS and I had the honor of serving with him and, and he's he's back now at FDA. And this is one of the things that he is really working on. Um, how do we all together, all hands on deck, fight against misinformation? It, it has to start with um, clinicians and scientists. Um, it, it has to start with patients, survivors, and caregivers. Everyone needs access to the facts so that facts can be shared and they need to be made um, uh, actionable and usable and relatable, which is again, guess what? Clinicians and scientists are not always the best communicators. <laughs> and that's why we need the networkers again, who could spread the good stuff. Um, uh, another study that I love is actually one that was looking at um, a discussion of sexually transmitted infection on Reddit really different, really different context. Most of those posts are anonymous, but again, the community would often um, post valid information. If somebody uh, was concerned about a symptom that they were experiencing and they posted it to this um, subreddit, the community posted um, valid information and encouraged people to go get it checked out. And they, you know, the the action that that a patient can take because they were able to connect to an online community, that fights against misinformation. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I mean, I, I think we all do. We all doctor Google. I mean, you know, uh, I, I, you know, being a, a a nurse, sometimes I think I my symptoms lead to something that that isn't actually true. And I, I doctor Google quite a bit. Um, but, but Matt, when you have a patient that, that comes in 
you know, and, and has Googled and has kind of, is it helpful ever? You know, what's, what's your, I think there's been an evolution in, we know Google exists. We know patients are Googling symptoms and, and trying to find answers. Um, helpful from your perspective or what are your comments there? I'd say on whole, Dr. Google's probably not what I love. I will admit, um, uh, because it's hard because patients don't have context with it, right? So I'm, I'm trying mm -hmm. to think if there's been any specific times where someone's like kind of been like, oh, you know what? I wasn't thinking about it. Let's go with it. Not usually, right? So at least on balance, it's it's, it's probably like net, um, net not helpful. That being yeah. said, those that do do the Dr. Google are kind of at the very least our seekers are engaged in their health, right? So it, it's less about what information are they bringing in. And I kind of use it as like, why do you think that? Or like, why are you worried? I mean, Dr. Google and Dr. WebMD basically says, if any, if you have a copy of cancer, right? So there's like, yeah. all related to cancer. Uh, so it's like, what, so for me, it's, it's a conversation starter. Right? It's less about like taking me on a diagnostic path and being, why are you worried about that? If you have a family member that had cancer, did, did you recently have a close friend that died of cancer? This is why you're worried about these symptoms. So it's more of a conversation jumping off point. And I, and those that come in doing their own research um, in, in a good way are engaged in their health and kind of what their next steps are. Um, so for me, it's kind of more, yeah, it's, it's a signal uh, more than anything else. Another thing that I'll kind of think about is that why do patients have to turn to patient communities? A lot of it is lack of access, one, to just information in general, right? It's paywall behind journals and, and things like that. The other part is just lack of access to a trusted source of information, often a clinician. Like if you're four weeks, eight weeks out to see any of your um, any of your doctors or your clinicians, you're going to turn to what else is there, right? That be it an internet um, source or a patient community source. So I don't have an answer to how to improve access to uh, the medical specialists. Um, and it doesn't have to be a visit, right? It, it could be messaging. But in some way, shape or form, we could improve kind of access to a trusted source. I think that'll also kind of help be a vaccine of sorts against misinformation. Can I just say, I love this idea that you see um, the Dr. Google result as a conversation starter, as a signal, like maybe let's talk about why you're concerned about that. And I think there's an opportunity for people, for clinicians um, who are seeing somebody um, who is definitely, you know, they're a seeker, they, they want to go out, they feel like they're not getting their answers. And so they go out looking for more to actually say, let me give you some keywords. Let me make sure that you're spelling that correctly. Um, mm -hmm. Let me let me give you some ideas about you know have have you heard about PubMed? Like if you focus your searches on PubMed, you'll you'll be fine. Um, and the other point that I like to to make is that science is always evolving, and the more that we can help everyone to understand that science is is going to change. Um, and, and we need to not, um, grip onto one conclusion that, that we read one time in an article that, that things are changing really rapidly. You know, we, we saw that in, uh, the COVID-19 situation that we're still in, um, that we were all learning together worldwide about how this virus was going to evolve and how it was going to, uh, you know, how, how we could possibly treat it. And the story that I tell in my book is that it was patients themselves who identified and named and are tracking long COVID 
post-viral illness that, that we all know has been with us for, for many, many years. And now we're seeing this huge wave because of COVID. Um, and patients were able to engage in what's called personal science and get the attention of mainstream science. Um, and, and we're all the better for it. And so um, this is an opportunity for the evidence base and the experience base to combine. It's hard to keep it in mind that science is gonna evolve and not everybody has the answers, but the more that we can educate people about that, I think the stronger our defenses will be against misinformation. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're running out of time. Um, we will have another episode with Susanna and Matt um, to talk about rebel healthcare workers. So stay tuned for that. I just want to thank you both. Um, the patient-led revolution, the the book is fantastic. I, I can't uh, say it resonated on many levels for myself um, and would encourage everybody to read it. But want to thank you both for your time today. And um, we'll see you guys next time on another episode. We appreciate your tuning in to THMT's unscripted podcast series. Want to learn more or have a comment about the program? Have a novel evidence-based approach or solution to share with our audience? If so, send an email to info at partnersindigitalhealth.com or visit Telehealth and Medicine Today Journal. Thanks for listening to Unscripted from THMT Journal today. See you again next time.